You're listening to The Good Faith, a podcast dedicated to applying historic Christian thinking to today's issues of faith, family, books, and culture. With your host, pastor, parent, and perpetual student of theology and culture, Chad Graham. We've all experienced the political cycle. Politicians wanting to get elected, talk down their opponent and say, ah, the current incumbent doesn't know anything, doesn't do anything right, it's all a mess. What you need is something new, something fresh. Elect me and things will get better. We'll have a better and more brighter future together. I'm going to make a whole bunch of promises. Here they are. I'm not going to tell you how I'm going to fund them. I'm not going to tell you how they're actually going to be possible, but don't they sound good? And then that politician gets elected. And most of those promises go by the wayside. And we don't really think the politician should be expected to carry out their promises. That's just the way politics work. But does it ever drive you nuts? I mean, seriously. Can't we as the voters see that we're basically being strung along by whoever the newest politician is, and that in the end of the day, we're ultimately going to get more of the same, maybe with a slight shift this way in policy or a slight shift that way in policy. Where I find it most frustrated is when we bring somebody in who makes all these grand promises and then ends up disappointing so badly and people say, oh, I I didn't see this coming. I, I can't believe it's this way. Well, in many ways... Church history is like that. We all think we kind of understand where we sit in our theological traditions, our church experiences, and we think that we're kind of just in the right place of orthodoxy in the middle. But we don't know church history. And just like all those political cycles, new movements come up in the church and we fall for them again and again and again. I once heard a lecture by Martin Lloyd-Jones in which he said one of the great benefits of having been involved in ministry so long at this time it had been from about the time of the Second World War, before the Second World War, through until the 1980s. You're saying, by the time you've been around this long, you've kind of seen all the fads come and go, and when they come again, you see them for what they are. But the church has an even broader memory than that, culturally or institutionally. It goes back thousands of years. One of the great formative periods of the church was the 3rd century. John Anthony McGuckin, in The Path of Christianity, the first thousand years, a book I highly recommend, speaks of the third century this way. He begins by saying, in the second century, so many developments took place in the Christian world that had lasting impacts. That is almost like observing the phenomenal growth rate of a young child, from tiny infant to hulking adolescent in so short a time, that if the growing continued at the same rate indefinitely, the child would end up as a giant. But of course, growth doesn't follow on at the same rate as that early period. And in church history, there are often, so it seems, eras of immense foundational energy followed by longer periods of consolidation and settlement. A sideways spread, if you like, where movements are more carefully assessed and filtered, and the third century is like this. A time of deepening consolidation and reflection, when the alternative schools have largely been named, categorized, and often rejected. But some of their agendas, and indeed several of their best insights, have had time to be taken on board sifted. One of the great keys of the third century was sort of a common sense approach to really focusing in and making sure that all that the church believed was in conformity with apostolic doctrine. In this, McGuckin explains, was the New Testament literature's embrace of the exegesis of the Hebrew scriptures broadly understood 
as a type of the Christ events proclaimed in the Gospels. I spoke about this last week as they're characterized by Irenaeus in On the Apostolic Preaching, another book I highly recommend. But ultimately, the church of the 4th century was a church of rather settled convictions. Very early on, kind of taking and harnessing all that was brought together in the consolidations of the 3rd century, the greatest leaders of the church came together at Nicaea, and they came up with what it becomes known as the Nicene Creed. Now, it'll be slightly edited uh, over the course of the century through some other movements, but in principle, it, it kind of comes out originally the way we ultimately receive it. And it was really, really important and foundational in setting the stage for what the church everywhere believes, and is today embraced by all, or virtually all uh, churches, all Orthodox churches. It's embraced by the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church, it's embraced by the Roman Catholic Church, it's embraced by all the different Protestant bodies, whether it's Reformed or Lutheran or Anglican or Methodist. And while there would be some sort of independence or kind of more fringe groups that would disagree with the creed, even those that are the more independent type of churches will generally say that they agree with the creed they just say they position and value it a little bit less than those other traditions do. And so the creed might be, and often is, characterized as the faith of the whole church. What it means to be a Christian is to be someone who understands things as they are found in the creed. What it means to be apostolic, to follow the apostles, is to be a church that conforms with the foundational things that are in the creed. It certainly doesn't cover everything, but it distinguishes Christianity from Judaism. It distinguishes Christianity from Islam. It distinguishes Christianity from some of the more modern cults like the Latter-day Saints or the Jehovah's Witnesses. And it distinguishes Christianity from paganism. It is the mark of Christianity. And so with the whole church, we confess in the words the creed translated into English, this. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again, in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now, there are just a couple of points about the creed that are often misunderstood and that can be clarified quite easily. It's divided roughly into three articles. The article on God, we believe in one God. The article on the Lord, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. And the article on the Holy Spirit, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. 
under that third article, we believe in the Holy Spirit, there are two points that those less familiar with the creed and those particularly familiar with the creed will notice and will pop into their minds right away. For those who are from a less liturgical background and have less familiarity with the creed, they'll notice immediately that it says we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And they'll say, what? Is this talking about the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy and the hierarchy and all the specifics of that particular group? No. This is a transliteration from the Greek word Catholicos, which basically means universal. This is the, the whole church everywhere. There's one church. It's a holy church. It's a universal church in both time and space. And it's apostolic, as we have discussed. It comes from the teaching of the apostles. Those intimately familiar with the creed will also notice that the second line of that final article I read of the Holy Spirit, that he proceeds from the Father. And you may be familiar with versions of the creed that say, and he proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is known as the filioque clause. It was something that was added at the Council of Toledo in the West hundreds of years after the creed. It only appears in the Latin text, not in the Greek text of the creed. It's never been accepted by the East. And through a good number of consultations and, and discussions between theologians and historians, it's really been conclusively shown that it's a little bit unfitted to have in the Son and the Son, rather, at this part of the creed today. It had an important historical point at the time that it came out. When the original creed speaks of the procession of the Holy Spirit, and I'll talk about this more at a later time, but in general what it's talking about is the being of God, the ontological procession of the Holy Spirit. It's about the relationship of the members of the Holy Trinity. There is one God in three persons. Three persons in one God. And the way that the, the, the persons relate to one another eternally is through begetting and proceeding. God the Father begets the Son eternally, the eternal begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Now, there was a big controversy in the Western Church around uh, the seven, uh, ninth century. And one of the things that was going on was that there was a denial of the Holy Spirit's relationship to the Son. And the New Testament makes very clear that the Son sends the Holy Spirit into the world. He has another comforter like the Son, another one like the Son who will go in his place. And when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus says, I and the Father come with him. And when the Holy Spirit dwells in you, I and the Father dwell in you. And so you're not left as orphans. And so the Holy Spirit's being sent by the Son is an economic or active procession. That is, that he is sent into the world by both the Father and the Son. And so the traditional creed, the historic original creed, speaks of the very nature of God, that in his nature he is one God in three persons, the first person begetting the second, and the third proceeding from the first. But when speaking of his actions in the world, the Son is sent from the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And so if it's looked at from the perspective of action in history, we might say that he proceeds from the Father and the Son, as the Western tradition, the Latin tradition has it. But if we're speaking of the nature of God himself, it's better to say that he proceeds only from the Father. And that's the way the creed was originally intended. And so the integrity of the creed taken as a document that deals with the nature of God 
God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, God the, uh, the Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, and the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father, it makes sense to treat it in its original meaning, although I'll try to address both, I think, at some point. That creed has really had an impact in the world. Perhaps the most notable thing is that it has been the greatest source of unity and the greatest source of disunity in the history of the Church. I already spoke about the Filioque Clause and the Son in the third article. This is the main point that separated the Eastern and Western Churches in the 11th century theologically. This is why there is a distinct split between the Greek East and the Latin West. Because Protestant churches tend to have come out of the Latin West, we kind of inherited that um, tradition, and that's kind of been ours per se, but we haven't really looked at or dialogued with the other side very much, very often. At the same time, going right back to the origin of the creed, it was brought together because Christianity had just become legal. A massive persecution period had just ended, and there was great confusion over what was the real church. People wanted to get in the church now because it was the cool thing to do. The emperor was involved, the government was involved. Hey, it's to our advantage to be part of the church, but what does it mean to be part of the church? What's the legit church? And so the creed was meant to be a unifying marker. Just a few years after its original composition, the early part of the 4th century, a massive uptick in the heresy known as Arianism, which taught that Jesus was not eternal God, that he was raised into deity, that he was the first creation of God. This was really big. And frankly, this is not very unlike what we see in the Jehovah's Witness faith or even the Mormon faith today, although they approach it from a different way. Jesus is a being of divinity somewhere between God the Creator and humanity. And so for a generation... The battleground was over whether you were a Nicene Christian or not, and it looked like the creed was going to collapse. One man, mightily used by God, turned the tide. And I'll talk about what happened here in the next episode of The Good Faith. listening to the Good Faith Podcast. For more episodes, related articles, and additional information, visit chadwgraham.com. The music that we've been enjoying in the background comes from the Tudor Consort, and their track, Kyrie Eleison, is protected by a Creative Commons copyright, which allows distribution and reuse with attribution. If you'd like to find a copy of Irenaeus' On the Apostolic Preaching, I recommend the copy put together by St. Vladimir's Press, translated and edited by John Baer, and the Nicene Creed is readily available anywhere online.